0: Our key scripture, we're talking about spiritual warfare and we're looking at uh, what, what Paul wrote to the ch- writes to the church at Ephesus about. And there are other things we'll, we'll look at at some point. But the real key scriptures here are in, in the book of Ephesians where he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shot or put on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me also, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth and speak boldly to, the, to make known the wisdom of the gospel. So we're looking at the fact, we've done a series a number of years ago, uh, two years ago as it is in fact, on on the, the armor of God, and it's involved here because it is part of what God has equipped us with to win this. But we're looking at this more from the point of view of the spiritual warfare. We've talked about the fact that uh, that that all of us are in some some degree of spiritual warfare, and the first element of being victorious is to recognize you 're in a battle we 've talked about the fact that in in World War I it was the first major war where the battlefield was taken into the cities and into the towns, and the Population, the civilians who'd never signed up for battle found themselves in the middle of this warfare. Their their gardens and their, their, their uh, uh, farmland were turned into, into um, uh, minefields and uh, in World War I, terrible uh, weapons of gas was, were issued, were, were released, and civilians were harmed by that as well as soldiers. In all the prior wars, primarily the battle was fought on battlefields by professional soldiers and the civilians reaped the outcome outcome of the war, but they were not immediate casualties or direct casualties from it. But in World War II, that changed. And so there came a point when people's lives in those cities where they had to wake up and realize, wait a minute, we're in a war here. They're shooting real bullets at us. And so it's important for us as Christians to recognize that we're in a, in a spiritual warfare. And so the Paul Immediately lets us know that we are in wrestling not with flesh and blood. So, verse 12 tells we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And what he's telling there is those are uh, principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness are referring to different levels of authority in the spirit realm. Of the the fallen angels, I don't want to get into the details of this, but the Bible teaches us that there was a rebellion in heaven, that, that Lucifer, who was one of the closest angels to God, very likely in charge of worship. Um, At one point, he got lifted up in his own beauty, and he was able to convince one-third of the angels to follow him in rebellion, which didn't last very long. And and the Bible tells us that that Lucifer was now became Satan, and he and one-third of those angels were cast down to this earth, and where they are being held until the ultimate... Judgment of them is to be handed out, which you see at the end of the book of Revelation. And so while they're down here, they're making war against anybody that belongs to God, God's kingdom, and they don't hate you, they don't care about you. It's the word of God in you and the kingdom of God that you affect, that you bring to this earth, and that we as the church bring to this earth. That's what threatens them. And we've looked at the fact that the Bible tells us that because of what Adam did, he turned the authority that had been given to him, he turned that over to Satan, and Satan then became the god of this world. He, became, he was given authority in this realm. When it talks about heavenly places, it's not talking about heaven where God lives. It's talking about the spiritual atmosphere that's around this earth. And there is a spiritual atmosphere around this earth which has spirit beings in it that are more real than your physical body and my physical body. And those consist of demons, which is what these principalities and powers and rulers are. But it also consists of angels, praise God. And isn't it nice to know there's two, twice as many angels as there are demons? And so there's a spiritual warfare going on and you and I are the focus of it. This church is the focus of it because we're the threat to the kingdom of darkness. And we've seen the fact that the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 that we have been delivered from the domain or the authority or the dominion of darkness, Satan's, And we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, but we've been left here because we're part of the battle. It says in several places in Hebrews that Christ has seated at the right hand of the Father because He's won His his part of the warfare. He has won. But He's waiting for His enemies to be put under His footstool. And the job of the church is to carry that out. And God has equipped us so that we can do that. But the problem is that most of the time the church is fighting a battle and they're not fighting the right enemy and they're not using the right weapons. Most of the time we're fighting people we're fighting flesh and blood. We're angry at people. We're judging people. We're wanna, we want to we You know, hurt people. We want to talk about people. We're, we're seeing people as our enemy. And the Bible tells us that it's not flesh and blood that we're wrestling against, but it's the principalities and powers that are using them to get at you because the demons in most cases don't have direct access at you so they got to use people to get at you and as long as you don't recognize what's behind that you'll get mad at the person and therefore you're never going to have the victory in that situation because if you get that one person out of your life he has another one lined up. So the people are never your issue. It's the, it's the spirits that are behind them. The second thing we learn is we're not to fight in our own strength. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And what we, then we learned what the weapons of our enemy are. Their deceit, their wiles, their, their, we looked at their, their lies, that Satan is, the, is a liar and the father of lies and there's no truth in him. So, but he uses truth as a weapon. He doesn't tell the truth, but he'll use truth as a weapon. So he may tell you a truth, but what's behind that truth is a lie. You follow me? Okay, all right. And then he'll, use, he'll, use, uh, he'll try to discourage you, he'll try to condemn you, anything to break down your resistance and your sense of righteousness that Christ has given you by being joined to, joined to him. And so we've looked at those, and then we began to look at the weapons that God has given to us. We saw the encouraging thing over in Second Corinthians, over excuse me, in Second in Corinthians chapter ten, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh; they are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. So Satan's weapons are fleshly. It's. It's envy, jealousy, strife, all those things that stir your flesh up and are used through other people's flesh. Those are his only weapons he can use against you. And the weapons that we have are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations or reasonings that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we looked at that last time and what we saw was what Satan wants to do is to lift anything up to keep you from the knowledge of what God's really like. And one of his major weapons is religion. Christianity, true Christianity, is not a religion. I know the world classifies it as a religion, but they don't understand what it is. It's a relationship. Religion is man's plans and concepts and ideas to bring God, to bring himself up to God, to make himself acceptable in God's eyes. And it's man's idea of how to do that. Christianity is God coming down to man and revealing himself by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. It's so far beyond anything man would ever conceive of that when we're first told about it, it just doesn't compute in our That, In fact, the Bible says that, it, that if the rulers of the world had recognized this, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. So Satan didn't understand what was going on. He never dreamed that God would take on flesh. He never dreamed because he deals in pride. He doesn't understand humility. He doesn't understand the humility of Christ. He doesn't understand that's why Christ was able to trap him. Say, how did he trap him? He trapped him by falling into his hands and being crucified. Because if Satan had realized what he was going to do by crucifying Christ, he never would have done it. That in what looked like defeat, what looked like Christ's defeat was actually the opening for Satan's defeat. Christ trapped him. But he trapped him by operating in humility because Satan cannot recognize humility. He cannot understand humility. He has no comprehension of humility. So he always assumes there's something else behind it. And so we talked about that. So he's so he's trying to exalt he's trying to exalt anything between us and the knowledge of God. In fact, Second Corinthians four four says that Satan's the one that blinds that blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the hope of the God that's in the, of Christ that's in, in, in the glory of Christ. And so Satan's interfering, and this is when we learn about intercession and we learn to pray. We've got to realize that we're coming against spiritual forces that are blocking that relative, that are blocking that, that, uh, that, that friend of yours, that coworker, from seeing the truth of what you're saying. And there was a time when your eyes were blocked. There was a time when you couldn't see, and suddenly the veil's removed, and you can see it all of a sudden. And when you can see it, if you have any desire for, 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 for a, a future and a hope, you, you, you jump at it. But he blinds people's eyes by confusing them and getting them afraid and trying to tell them what God's really like. And see, the church is here to be an example of what God's really like. And we've utterly failed at that. We've utterly failed at that because we've operated in the things of this world in our own flesh. And we've come in, and we've come and dealt with the issues of our of this day instead of on principles that the Word of God teaches. We've dealt with things in the flesh, thinking because it was a good cause that all our effort and all our striving and all our and most of the time it's anger and strife. And we get angry at people, and instead of being a witness of Christ's love, we're standing up for doctrines and principles, and we're telling them how much God hates and how much God's hard and how why would people want to come to a God like that. Why do you think church isn't filled every Sunday, every time it's opened? Because there are people all around us that have no concept of what you know and why you're here tonight. Because they don't understand that by coming, that they're going to meet a God who loves them and cares about them, died for them, to save them and to redeem them. Because what so often the church communicates about God is hardness and rigidness and law and and principles instead of the compassion of Christ and the love of Christ. And yes, we need to stand up for the truth. And yes, there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. But the way we witness that is what often drives people away instead of draws them to us. And we need to wake up to that, and we need to learn, or else we're going to fail at what we're here to do. All right, so that's what we've been looking at. And so we started to look then at the end of last time at some of this armor. Now, now it's important to understand that this armor, you know... I, as again, two years ago, we taught a series on Wednesday night on the armor of God. And I've seen teachings on, you know, or people share, you know, when I get up in the morning, I put on my helmet of salvation and I put on my breastplate of righteousness and I put on the belt of truth and I put on the, the shoes of peace and all those things. Don't look at those as something, something of, that are in and of themselves. It's literally putting God on. Because he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So this armor is most of it's defensive. Because if you're going to get in battle with somebody, the most important thing, first of all, is to protect yourself so you're around to win the battle. So that you're not afraid and always backing up, so that you can go boldly into battle because you know the vital parts of you are protected. But the protection here is putting God on. And so these these armor, th- this armor simply represents aspects of God and His character, which when you're born again, you already have in you. Because we have the nature of God in us, we just have to put Him on. And that's really all this is. You don't have to go to your closet and dust off your breastplate of righteousness and put it on. God's righteousness is in you. You just have to start acting that way. So as we look at these elements, don't get focused on them as as a particular thing, it's really different aspects of who God is, but it's important to understand them because these are areas where Satan comes and attacks us. These are areas to protect because in the course of this battle, this is where his wiles, his deceits, his condemnation, his lies, he uses these to attack you in these areas and so this armor is just getting, it's really getting close enough to God that you're not vulnerable in these areas. So we began to look at those, and the first one we began to look at is truth last time. And the reason that's the the first one and the most important one is above everything, not only is God love, he's truth. And the Bible says we looked at that last time, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, which means truth, then we have fellowship with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So walking in the truth, and we looked at one of, the, one of the weapons Satan uses, one of his devices, is to work in the area of shadows. Not darkness, because when we're, things are dark, we just stand still, we're not going to move. But light, uh, shades of things, and shadows of things, we think we know. So I've, <laughs> I walked through here, it was today, or maybe it was yesterday, and, and I've, I know this, I know not to do this, but sometimes I'll come in here and it's dark and there's a, there's a walk-in switch over there and there's a walk-in switch over there so that you don't walk in here in the dark and run into something or somebody. And I was coming through here and my habit is to turn that one on, walk over to that one, turn that one off and I've looked down that aisle and I know it's safe. But I was coming back through and I, I know it's pretty safe to walk back through there because there's no switch over there. And I started to do that the other day and I remembered, you know what? Alan rearranged some of the chairs for the concert. I better be just a little bit careful. Now, if I'd walked in here and it was pitch dark, I would have made sure I had a light on. But there was a little bit of light enough so that I could figure my way around. And fortunately, I didn't run into anything. But I had—I don't know—I had something in my hands that if I dropped it, it would have broken. And so I was trying to be very careful. My point is this: because I could see a little bit, I ventured in. But it was still as dark as it was light so there were shadows of things and in that that partial light and partial darkness we're sometimes bold enough to step in thinking we can discern what's really there from what's not there and that's the area where Satan works in the area of shadows a shadow is something that's not where light's not directly on it but the shadow is the part that's a reflection of the light it's not the light itself And Satan works in that area. God works in pure light and truth. So we looked at it last time. In order to be successful in spiritual warfare, the first thing is you must be walking in truth. Truth with yourself, first of all. And then truth with God. And since God knows everything anyway... He does, you're not going to ever fool him. So the only person you're ever going to fool is yourself. And when you're fooling yourself, what happens is you're opening yourself up to deception. And we looked last time, or we talked last time, we didn't look there, at James chapter 1, where he says that, that if we're hearers of the word, and not doers we deceive ourselves and when we deceive ourselves then Satan moves into that area of deception and now we've empowered him in that area so we've taken part of our armor and we've opened it up and we've let him in and so the truth walking in truth is so, so important and so that's what we looked at last time now we're going to look at the next piece of the armor here having girded your waist with truth verse 14 having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness, first of all, what's a breastplate do? It protects your chest. And the vital part of your chest, of course, is your heart. And as we've talked about here before, and we've been talking a little bit about on Sunday morning, that, that, that the, your, the condition of, of your heart is all important. Because the Bible says that guard your heart with all diligence... Proverbs 4. Guard your heart with all diligence for out of it come the issues of life. So your life, the, the, your, 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 the forces of life come out of your heart but also your heart, your heart affects what you understand and what you know about God. So Satan is always trying to find some opening to deposit something in your heart that will begin to corrupt it. In Hebrews chapter uh, 12, it talks about being very careful to not allow, not to get into any any envy or jealousy or strife, any bitterness. It calls it a root of bitterness. Well, what it, what's bitterness get rooted in? It gets rooted down in our heart and says, because when that happens, it will defile many. Why? Because when bitterness gets rooted down in your heart, you'll begin to speak out of the abundance of the heart and that bitterness will be sown into other people's hearts and then it begins to get rooted in there and pretty soon the whole atmosphere begins to be affected by bitterness, which is one of Satan's weapons. So what he's after, one of the things he's after is to sow things into your heart. Envy, jealousy, strife. Let's look over at James. My glasses just broke. Okay, that's why it's not working right. Oh, there we go. you may get half a sermon because I can only see out of one eye, right? <laughs> now, this is a great lesson. My right eye can see clearly. My left eye can see, but it's all fuzzy because somehow these glasses, the thing came out and the, the lens isn't where it needs to be. So I'm going to read with one eye. What did I tell you? James? Okay. i got to remember what I was going to talk about. Okay. Would you do me a favor and go get those? Okay. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, where? In your heart. So someone sown that in your heart. Bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart. Do not boast or lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So envy, jealousy, self-seeking, when they're sown in your heart, that is wisdom because when, you, when you're envious, when you're jealous, thank you dear, okay, good, when you're envious or you're jealous or you're self-seeking, you see things, you know what you see, that's why you're willing to open our mouth and say it boldly, but the wisdom that are speaking is not from God, it's it's demonic. So it's been sown in there by demons. Demons suggesting things to you or through someone else because Satan wants to poison your heart with 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 suggest- And notice all of those things. Envy. What is envy? Envy. Somebody's got something I ought to have. Envy, somebody's got a better place than I do, or something nicer than I do. Somebody's got my position. It's about me. Envy. Self-seeking, well, that's obvious. That's about me. Jealousy, that's about me. All of those are rooted in me. Getting my eyes on me, and whenever my eyes are on me, I'm not getting God's wisdom. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but what does it say? It's earthly, sensual, or sensuous, and demonic. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 13. None of this was in my notes, so this is off the, fresh off the press. We're not going to have time to go through all of this, but Matthew thirteen, the first twenty-three chat verses, are, is the parable of the sower. And of course, this is the parable Jesus teaches about about the, the farmer sows the seed, thro- sows the seed, and when they sowed sowed seed, they would throw it out like that. Some of it falls on the road some of it falls on soil but the soil's not very deep some of it falls on soil that's got depth to it but there are other things that are so, that are growing in there that are weeds and then the final one seed is sown on ground where the where the ground's been tilled and there's nothing else in there and in this parable Jesus then goes on to explain that the seed represents the word of god and the farmer is god who sows the seed into our hearts of the word of God and then what happens is the only other thing in there is that the the first seed produces nothing because it's immediately taken up by the birds of the air they come down and just pick it up and eat the seed because it didn't take root in anything because it would fell on on the hard on the road the the seed that fell on the soil that was not very deep began to take root but instead of going deep the roots like grass went out and as soon as the sun came up the sun came up the roots were not deep they didn't go down into any moisture so they dried up and the plants just they never made it so they never got to produce any fruit the other seed fell on soil that had some depth so the roots began to go down. But when the roots began to try to draw moisture and try to draw uh, try to draw nutrients out of the ground, there was competition there from other seeds that had been thrown sown in there. Weeds and tares and things like that that had been sown in there were competing for those things. So although these grew up and began to produce some fruit, the fruit was defective. it was not matured. it never grew up so that it was never suitable to be to be eaten and to be used and then the final one of course is the seed that was sown on ground that had been properly tilled and all the, all the other things, the clods in the grass and the rocks had been taken out so that the roots could go down easily without resistance. There was, they were, the weeds had been pulled out and nothing else was allowed to get planted in there. Then the result was that what we, it, the, the plant, when the, when the roots went down there, it, was able, it, had, it had no competition for the moisture. It had no competition for the nutrients. So it drew out of that soil everything that was needed to produce a crop 30, 60, and 100-fold. And Jesus goes on to explain that the soil represents our hearts. The Word is sown in our hearts. So the only thing that makes a difference of what this Word can do in our lives is the condition of our hearts, which is why Proverbs says to guard your hearts with all diligence. Why? Because there's an enemy out there that's either going to try to steal the seed before you even hear it, So when we sit in church and we're, you know, and I've done this, you know, you're counting the sailing tiles or your mind gets distracted by something else, whatever was said at that moment got stolen from you. Which, and I'm not looking at anybody, which is why I learned to sit up close because the further back you sit, the more distractions there are that the enemy can use. To distract you, because every time we come together, every time you open your Bible, every time you look out into the Word of God, God wants to sow. God wants to sow something in your heart that He knows you need. That's going to bear fruit. But there's a battle that's going on for that process. Before it ever even gets in there, there's a battle coming on to distract us so that we don't hear it to begin with. Oh, we may hear the words, so it gets sown, but it doesn't ever stick because it goes in our ear one ear and out the other. And then there's the soil where it gets in there, but we never we never act on it. We never we, we live here. We live here saying, "Wow, that was great! I heard things I never I needed to hear that." And we go out and we don't act on it. And when we don't act on it, what happens is we begin to forget it. What James says, if we go and back and look at verse, chapter one of James, he says, "When you're a doer, hear the word of not a doer, you forget it. You're like somebody who looks themselves in the mirror and then they go on through the day and forgot what that appearance looked like." you ever 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 have somebody that you knew years ago and, and you haven't seen them in a long time or a picture? You may have some vague idea of what they look like, but the, the memory of it begins to fade if it's not constantly in front of you. And so when we hear the word, but we don't do it. I've had people come to me and say, boy, that series of, you know, like renewing the mind. I was talking to Steve earlier, and I've had other people say, boy, it really changed me. I said, no, what changed you is you heard it and you did it. That's what changed you. Now, if you hadn't heard it, you wouldn't have been able to do it. But it's hearing it and then putting it into practice in your life. Because if we just hear the Word and we don't put it into practice, we're like that soil. It gets sown in there, but other things come along and and the pressures of life begin to, to wear it away. And then there's the seed that gets sown. It gets in our heart, but then the cares of this life the deceitfulness of riches. Other things that Satan brings into our life to distract us begin to get sown in there also. It's kind of like what we talked about on Sunday about Jesus. why Jesus says, don't worry about those things because when you worry about them, you open your heart to them to become treasures in your heart. We should care about them. They're important things to take care of to make sure that you, you know, you have food, you have clothing, you have housing, all those basic things. But most of the things that we worry about are not those things. Most of the things we invest. And so when we do that, we're allowing Satan to sow those things into our heart to compete with the Word of God. And so it may produce things in our life. We may be growing, but the best fruit that God wants to have in our life isn't coming out of our life. We're not enjoying the best of those fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that He wants to bear in our lives. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all those things. The nine fruit of the Spirit, all those things God wants to be... That's Because that fruit coming out of us is when people can see Christ in us. That's when He can live His life through us, when He's bearing that fruit through us. But when He's competing with all the cares of this world. So the whole point here is that that breastplate protects the heart. Protects the heart because that is the most vulnerable part of you spiritually. That's the goal. Satan wants to get in your heart because if he can sow things in your heart, your heart is, this, is like your center of gravity. I've told you this example before, but when I was in high, in, in high school, uh, the school I went to, Uh, They didn't have a PE program. You had mandatory sports. So you had to be part of a sports program. And in the winter, uh, the the sports program, I always liked basketball, but I wasn't tall and I wasn't fast and I wasn't coordinated. So basically, I was the manager. Now, in baseball, the manager is the guy that runs the team, and basketball is the guy that picks up the dirty towels. So I was a dirty towel picker-upper. But it gave me the privilege of watching, being at the practices and watching the practice. And it was worth it for this one thing I learned, because it, it changed my life. The coach we had was very good on defense, and he was teaching them how to block. And some of you heard me say this before. He was teaching them how to block. This is high school. How to, how to not get faked by the man that has the ball. And he said, some of these guys that are coming are very clever. And he says, they're going to come at you and they'll come at you and and they want to go around you because they either want to pass the ball or shoot the basket. So one of the things they'll do is they'll fake their head this way and then they'll go this way. They may start to pass the ball this way and then pass it this way. They may do things with their eyes. They may do things with their feet. And don't wash their eyes, don't watch their head, don't watch their hands, don't watch their feet because they can move their hands one way and go another way. They can look one way and go another way. They can move their head one way and then change it another way. They can take one step this way and go another way. But there's one part of them they can't go without and that's their belly and that's their center of gravity. Wherever that goes, that's where they're going and they can't fake with that. And that's the equivalent of your will, of your heart. That your heart is tied to your will. And and that's why Satan is after your heart. Because it affects everything you do. Even your faith comes out of your heart. Because... Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty three 23 and 24, it's what you believe in your heart, not your head, your heart. James says, talks about believing in your heart, having faith in your heart. So the, your heart, the faith that works, the faith that moves mountain, the faith that God responds to is a faith that comes out of your heart, not your head. So Satan doesn't mind if you believe things with your mind, it's your heart that he's after. So the breastplate of righteousness is very important because it guards your heart. Now notice what is guarded by, righteousness. Righteousness. Which means that one of Satan's weapons, and it has two two meanings to this. It means one of Satan's weapons is to condemn your heart. To condemn your heart. What kind of Christian are you? Everybody else in here tonight loves God with all their heart when they sang "I give my life away they've all done it you're the only one that hasn't done it and they'll take mistakes in your life and things you've you know he'll take He's so he is so crafty he'll give you a thought that is not a good thought and then turn around and condemn you for having the thought because if he can and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the, the, the helmet of salvation because what he's after is your heart to discourage your heart to condemn your heart because when you become discouraged and you become, feel condemned, your resistance is lowered and your will to fight is lowered because you begin to believe those things about yourself. Now the Bible gives us an answer to that. This is part of the breastplate of righteousness. It says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin, that's Christ, became sin. He didn't sin, He took it on Himself. He who knew no sin. Now Jesus, I've taught you this before, Jesus, the righteousness that He had, He earned because He perfectly kept the law. His righteousness was earned under the old law because under the old law, if you never violated it, you could stand before God in your own righteousness. And Jesus, He was tempted in all ways with sin As we were, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, yet he never sinned. So Jesus came to the end. In fact, his testimony about himself in the book of John near the end is he says, Satan is coming, but he could find no place in me. He could find nothing to get a hold of in Jesus, which means he tried. We know he tried in Luke chapter 4 in the, in the wilderness, but it says he left him for a more opportune time, which means he kept trying. He kept trying to find some time. Some time when he was tired. Some time when he was maybe, he was getting frustrated with those disciples. sometimes when he was just whatever it was, he was trying to find some time to get in, but he never could get in because Jesus was never here about himself. Jesus' focus was always I am here to do my father's will I'm not here about myself I'm not here to carry out anything about myself prove anything about myself or do anything about myself I'm here to carry out my father's will and as a result Satan could get hold of nothing so Jesus comes to the end goes to the cross is perfectly obedient he has to wrestle with his will but he submits his will goes to the cross is perfectly obedient he's raised from the dead and seats at the right hand of the father Jesus Jesus now has earned his righteousness under the law. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin, who was righteous his whole life, took on himself sin. Not just our sins, but sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. but The key words are the last two words in Him. So when you came to Christ, when you gave your life to Christ, when you received Him as your Savior and, and, and let him, had Him come into your life and turned your life over to Him, the Bible says you were joined to Him. You were made one with Him. So whatever He is, you are Because you're in Him. Not because you become those things, but because you become in Him. You didn't change and suddenly become righteous in yourself. What you suddenly became is in Christ and in His righteousness. You were joined to Him. So whatever He is, that's what you are because you're in Him not because you made, He cleaned you up and made you righteous. You're in the process of getting cleaned up. But when you came to Christ, your status before God was you were joined to Him. So whatever He is, that's what you became because you are now in Him. And He could do that because He paid for your sins. So it's His righteousness that you've been given, not yours. So you're standing before God to come into His presence. You're standing before God to pray and consider yourself a righteous man as James 5 talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That standing before God is not because you've been righteous in your own self. It's because you've been clothed with His righteousness not because He dropped His robes in your living room and you put them on but because you were joined to Him and because you are joined to Him and one with Him you are as righteous in God's eyes as He is. And so the breastplate is to put Christ on. When you're feeling like dirt, and there may be some grounds for feeling like that, why can you come to God and ask for forgiveness? Because you come in Christ. Because you understand God does not forgive you. Now listen carefully. God does not forgive you because He loves you. God does not forgive you because He's understanding and compassionate and can understand the things that you've gone through. Because if God forgave you just because He was understanding and compassionate... See, that's what we as parents often do. Then God would stop being righteous because He'd be bending His law for us. See, the law didn't go away. God hasn't suddenly stopped requiring that He be the, the, the God in our life. God hasn't suddenly stopped requiring that we honor Him. God doesn't stop requiring that we not lie. God doesn't stop requiring those things. That law had to be had to be satisfied. God's justice had to be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. And unless God... Unless there was a death to pay for those sins, God couldn't forgive. So God doesn't forgive us because He loves us. Now listen carefully. God can forgive us because He sent Christ to the cross to pay for your sins And God sent His Son to the cross to die for us because He loves us. So it's not that God didn't love us. Because He loved us, He paid for your sins with His own Son's life. Because if we don't understand that, we don't understand the true righteousness. We don't understand the power of that righteousness because we think what God's done is somehow He's bent His standards a little bit. He's somehow, you know, relaxed things a little bit because He's been compassionate on us because He understands that we're just human and we're just weak in our own way. He just understands that, which means somewhere we're subtly letting lowering God's righteousness. No. God's righteousness demanded that for sin, there had to be death. And it was either your death or someone else's death. And it had to be the death of somebody that was righteous. And so God's only alternative was to send His Son to walk on this earth, to go to that cross and to take your sin, my sin, and God's judgment for that sin upon him that's why it says, said in the King James his visage was marred beyond man it, his face didn't even look any more human not just because he was beaten but because of the agony that he went through bearing the sin sin itself in a life that had never never sinned and then God had to pour his anger and his judgment out on that sin on his son Oh, how he must love us. How he must love you. He didn't just do this as some legal requirement, but he had to knowingly pour out his anger and judgment and the fire of hell on his son in order to be able to legally give you his righteousness. And if we understand that, then, we under, then there's a strength in that righteousness because it's a righteousness that was paid for and a righteousness that was paid for fully. And see, if we just think that somehow it's because God's been compassionate on me, then we think somehow it's because of something about us. And if you think any of your righteousness is what's protecting you, then it's like wearing paper tissue as a protection because it won't hold up against Satan's onslaughts because a lot of what Satan attacks you with is true. He accuses you of things you've done. He accuses you of things you've thought. He accuses you of things you're guilty of. And if any of that righteousness that we're using to defend ourselves is us, then it's going to pierce right through that because your righteousness is filthy rags and so is mine. It will not stand against his accusations. But when we put on his righteousness, when we put on the righteousness that's been paid for in full, where that sin you committed and the thoughts you had has already been paid for on that cross and that's the righteousness you put on. That is like solid gold and solid brass, solid brass, not gold. It is like steel because it's the righteousness of Christ. And as those barbs we're going to talk about next time come at you. It says, you had those thoughts. Look what you did. Yeah, but it's paid for. It's been paid for. I'm guilty, but it's been paid for. I'm I'm guilty, but it's been paid for, so it can't hurt my heart because it already hurt His. He took my place. The pain and the agony for my guilt, He bore. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. That's talking about the shame and the guilt of what we've done wrong, that was upon Him, so that we might have peace. We'll talk about that too. So, I've never taught this before. So the armor that we wear, that we pick up and put on, is His righteousness. That it's not just disconnected from us, it's His righteousness He gave us, because He took the judgment, for what we're accused of. So I'm guilty, Satan. I did that. Now, not everything accuses me of my guilty, but I'm guilty of what you accuse me of. But I'm not ashamed because he took that for me. It's been paid for. I'm guilty, but it's been paid for. And so it can't get through to my heart when I'm standing in his Righteousness. And that's why it's so important that we renew our minds and understand that none of that righteousness can be based on anything about me. It can't be based on my good intentions. It can't be based on my, you know, how how hard I've tried or how anything about me because if there's any aspect of this righteousness that I'm standing in that's me, it's vulnerable because it's me. And any aspect of me is just going to be like tissue paper for Satan to get through. So it's the righteousness of God. Think of that. The righteousness of God. Because we're in Christ. Because we're in Christ. Now, um, we're going to close the a minute, but there's another side of that. So the first side is the outside of the armor. Uh, and that's the side that Satan sees. He looks at you, whether you realize it or not, and he sees Christ. You may not be acting that way, but he sees Christ in you. And so you need to hold that armor up to him and say, yeah, you can say all those things about me, but I'm in Christ, and that's who's standing before you. That's the outside of the armor. But armor has two sides to it. It has an inside, which is the part that goes against your heart. And that's referring to your own, the righteousness that you're walking in. So if you're trying to wear this armor but inside you're purposefully disregarding God and doing on your own way and you're sinning regardless. Of, not, I'm not talking about, you know, trying, you're struggling, but I mean, you just don't, you know, I don't want to do what God wants to do. I just, I'm holding on to known sin because I want to, not because I'm weak and I'm trying to overcome it. Then I'm choosing to hold on to my unrighteousness. See the difference? It's not like, look, I, you know, I'm overcoming it. I don't want this. But sometimes we want to hold on to certain things pet things. And I want to hold on to this unrighteousness. So I've snuggled, I've I've smuggled under under it my own unrighteousness that I'm holding on to. So part of it is we've got to be walking in righteousness. Not perfectly, because you never will. But it comes back to obedience. is being willing. So what we've looked at is the belt of truth. Truth is being honest with God and honest with ourselves being perfectly, openly honest. And then Satan can't come in with any of his deceits because you've been honest about it. You know, a long time ago, I just learned as a child, I couldn't lie because I just didn't have a good enough memory. <laughs> because if you've told a lie, you've got to remember what you said. Because you've got to, tell, you've got to be consistent in the lie. And I just found it's a lot easier to tell the truth. That's why I've learned it's a lot easier just to drive the speed limit. I don't have to worry about whether there's a policeman around the corner because if you're driving the speed limit, you don't have to worry about it. There's a lot less stress. Well, if you tell the truth, just as a practical matter, there's a lot less stress. You don't have to remember anything because you've told the truth. And so truth, and now we've learned tonight that it's the breastplate of righteousness. These are all aspects of who God is. God is truth. God is truth. And God is absolutely righteous and holy. And in Him, we've been made righteous. We'll pick up next time with the rest of these pieces of the armor of who God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and your grace in our lives, your faithfulness. We come to you right now, Father, and we ask you in whatever the battle is that we're going through right now, that you help us to recognize that we are in Christ that we're not alone in this warfare. You've not left us out on a battlefield and gone back to your palace, but you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. And not only that, you are in us to enable us to win. Help us to learn how to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.